Today I'm talking to Thibaut Louis Luca, a serial indie hacker who just can't stop building products that empower other creators. We chat about the joy of building and the motivation behind continuous entrepreneurship. Thibaut shares his approach to building stable software products, being acquired, and then acquiring a SaaS product himself, and what makes building in public so powerful for indie hackers with their SaaS projects. This episode is sponsored by Acquire.com, and we will be diving into acquisitions today as well, so let's get right to our conversation. Here's Thibaut. Thibaut, you recently sold two businesses for over like $10 million, yet you didn't stop building. You didn't spend every day sipping drinks at the beach like people dream of, right? So what's the motivation that you're still building stuff? What keeps you addicted to the hustle? Well, I think it's just not money, I guess. It's, it's like, for me, it's like playing Lego, like when I was five. It's, it's just the, the most... The, the most funny, the best thing that I would enjoy, I think, for the rest of my life, like building new thing and this unique feeling when people are using your products, you know, it's the best. I, I know that feeling. I was, I was talking to, to Sharath, my, our probably peer, uh, mutual friend from Twitter, and uh, just yesterday, and I was describing what I was working on right now, and I got so excited. And he said, you kind of sound like my two-year-old, like my two-year-old child that just found a new toy. And I feel that's kind of what drives indie hackers, right? This joy of building. Is that, is that yeah. for you to like the, the best thing possible that you could possibly do? I I think the early stages of any new project, like no matter what you've built before, it's, it's so unique, like this excitement and, and at the same time, like scaleness, scaredness of like not finding product market fits. It's like, yes, it's, it's unique. And I think it's so much underfins that if you, if you have lived through this once, you absolutely, you desperately want to live it again. Yeah, I bet. So it feels, what it sounds like is that you kind of crave that initial stage. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. Well, that is, that's an interesting thing because honestly, my own experience, like you said, it's a frightening stage, right? You, you have to constantly think, where is this going to go? You have to do all these experiments. How do you deal with this pressure? Is that something that just, that's just part of it for you? Or do, have you found ways to, to cope with it and just, you know, be hopeful about the, the future outcomes of building? Have you, have you read this book? Um, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. Yeah. Yes. Like this, this is an awesome book. I definitely recommend it. It, like it, it can, it can totally change your perspective about how it should be at work. But for me, it's, it's kind of the, the opposites on my own projects. It's like, it's like this pressure that you talked about. It's the one thing that I would be looking for to like to motivate me on a daily basis to ship new things, to like try to to change um, how people are using my products, just look for new growth vectors. I don't know, like everything that can like drive new perspective, new usage, like pure excitement. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it, it sounds like you, you you just need a lot of variety, a lot of variations of the things that you do. Is, is that why you sold those businesses that grew to a certain point? Like uh, I mentioned that you just, you know, a couple, couple of years ago, I guess at this point, sold uh, both Tweet Hunter and, and Taplio for 10 plus million dollars, which is crazy. Is, is that the, the, you reached the ceiling and then you sold? Is that what happened? This is, this is definitely part of it. Yeah. Uh, but definitely not the, the only reason. The thing is, um, so my, my co-founder, wanted to sell a little bit more than I did. Um, the truth is I really thought at the time that we could go much further. And there was like in, in big decision like this, there, there's a lot of rational thing that you need to think about how, like how we were platform dependent. And that was before the Elon Musk drama and like how, how Twitter turned into X. So, we, we were very much uh, platform dependent and we were scared about that. Um, and at the same time, um, we had this conversation with my co-founder that 
the SaaS was skyrocketing, but we were definitely not getting a big money from, from the SaaS. So at any point, everything could collapse and we would get basically zero from, from the success of our products. And, and you probably know a lot about Twitter and how, um, how Twitter has changed a lot in the last few years. But our second product, Taplio, is even more platform dependent on, on LinkedIn, just because what we are doing there is a little bit more sketchy in a way that we are not only using the, the public API, but we are using our Chrome extension to, to get some, um, additional data that we need to run the SaaS. And, and it could happen that LinkedIn, um, succeed in, in blocking what we do. We, we don't think that will happen because, uh, I think they are benefiting from what we are doing. Like we are, we are making the creator ecosystem on LinkedIn a bit bigger, but who knows? It's very interesting. The browser extension thing, uh, is particularly interesting to me. Like, uh, I remember in my own SaaS and Feedback Panda that we sold in 2019, we did the exact same thing. Like the platform that we were on, these online schools in China, they did not allow us to be on. But we had like a browser extension that would just like go into the, you know, the, the Vue.js data model and just extract data out of it and send it to our servers. So I, I guess, uh, sketchy browser extension. I know exactly what that is. And I know that that is, that's super dangerous, right? Cause you're always playing with fire. And by the way, th this is such a indie maker thing. This is such a, a, a solopreneur <laughs> thing in a way that yeah. like all those big companies, they just, they just can't do that. Like they just can't allow the teams to do some shady, dark things. And like as indie makers, you're like, you're like if you are looking for an ID, something that where you would just be, uh, totally free, free of, of competition from the big guys, just, just go for a Chrome extension doing some shady stuff with uh, <laughs> private APIs for, from website. It's, it's, it's a gold mine. You can do a lot of That's things. That's funny. Do, do you ever feel like morally, you know, skeptical of that kind of behavior? Because obviously shady here just means like you're doing stuff that is not intended to be. It's not criminal technically, but it's, it's kind of, you know, questionable. Do you ever wonder if it's okay to do these things? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a good question. Um, my limit, my, my own limit is, am I, um, am I putting at risk the accounts of the user that is using the product? And if no, uh, I think I'm fine. So th this applies to me, um, for Tapio as an example to, um, the, um, the LinkedIn user who are using Tapio. Are they putting their account at risk? And in the case of Tapio, the answer is no. Is no. Uh, they are not putting their account at risk. So I think we are fine, and we are making everyone happy there. Uh, so I would I would continue to do so. Yeah, of course. And I think, and and you do right. If I, if I look at the the history with Tweet Hunter at this point, I think I remember that there was a point in 2023 when it was kind of banned when Twitter banned the the API access probably because of automatic DMs. I don't if I remember right. Can you tell me about that moment? Like I think it just was a week or so that you were offline. How did that happen? What did you do to get back? And how did that play into your you know risk calculations about the platform? Uh, that's that's a crazy story, but just, just for, just for the record, this happened after we, we sold Tweet Hunter. So that was a moment when we, like we, we lost total access to Twitter, to all API endpoints. And that was the moment where we just told ourselves that we were so, so right for having sold our business. But so the, the full story is that, um, I think it was in March, 2023. So almost a year ago, Twitter announced that, um, developers would need to go pay 42,000 per month to keep using the API. And that, that was a crazy amount. Like uh, it, it made a huge noise on Twitter. Basically, that was the end of, um, indie hacking on, on the Twitter API. Like uh, only the big, the big players could afford that. And the thing is, um, they announced that they say, they said, uh, you'd have 30 days 
to, to transition, here is a form, fill it. And so we did that. We, we filled the form and, and then we waited. And I think like four days later, so out of the 30 days, four days later, we got our API access totally cut off, like no warning, nothing. And, and we were not alone, like uh, uh, two or three competitors uh, had the same and we worked together actually. That was pretty nice. We worked together trying to find the good, um, the good person to talk to at Twitter. It was crazy days because we're like when, when nothing works, you are just refreshing your unsubscribe metrics and it's, it's bad. Like it's very bad. What, one, one thing is, so we had this very nice, um, um, collaboration between the Twitter API people like me. Um, but one of our competitors tried to like, um, to win out of this, um, trashing us publicly on Twitter and grabbing our, uh, our subscribers. It didn't really work, but kind of made me sick. <laughs> and so the it's nice a competitive thing is, space, right? It's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> very. And, and we, th- with this competitor, especially we, we don't have good relationships, but then like two days later, uh, we finally got access to the right person at Twitter. We worked together, we signed the contracts very fast and we got back our API access. And so we got cut off from the Twitter API for like 48 hours, I think. So during this time, we're just looking at people churning and there was nothing we could do. Did they come back when you had your, your access restored? Yeah, definitely. And in the end, we just made the calculation and it was so, so slow. Like I think less than 1% of the people churn. So it was, it was more than a, than awful feeling than the actual truth, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it feels bad, right? That that's the thing. When, once you have something like this happen to you, and I I had similar things with Feedback Panda, like the the Chinese companies they would just change their website, and our integration would break, and everything would break in our product because the data wouldn't flow anymore, right? It's it's kind of similar that they just cut off access to their API because they changed their API, and it, it once I noticed that I got that the error messages came in and customer service messages came in, it pulled pulled me down. Like my emotional status changed from happy developer into super sad developer. And then I had to fix it and I had to talk to people and I had to, you know, like deal with people churning just like you did. How did you deal with this emotionally at that point? Because a week is still a lot of time. Like, how did you get through this? I think pretty much in the same way. So the, the problem where you are building in public, I guess, like we do is that you, you basically become the SaaS. So this is like Twitter is, is me, or at least it was me. So when, when Twitter is, is bad and buggy, it reflects on me and, and I take it personally. So I was, I was feeling awful. Even if we, even if the tool already got acquired, like it was still me, you know? Yeah. Yes. It's it's so crazy for indie hackers how much identity we put onto our products, right? How much of ourselves they are. I always compare this with like they, they are kind of our children in a way that we made them, right? And and we cared for them and we let them grow up. And then that made it makes it especially hard to actually give them away, right? So it's like you offer your SaaS up for adoption if you sell it, if you get acquired. Did that impact you at all? I mean, you stayed with the business, which is it's different, I guess. You still have custody, but did that impact your your emotional relationship with the business at all? Not that much, because yeah, because basically um, nothing changed in my involvement in in Twitter, so. Tom, my co-founder and I are still fully managing the business. And, and that was one of the key points of, of the acquisition. Uh, we talked some, we, we talked with some big players, um, companies like HubSpot and it felt, it felt awful to like to just project yourself in such a big company, totally losing control on the product. And yeah. And, um, and just being a, a just a, a little piece in this in this big company, you know. So that that was like a major topic that we discussed with uh, Lempire, the company which acquired us. And what made it very easy is that 
we have the same culture, same age. Um, we live in the same country, speak the same language. I don't know if you know about that, but uh, so we started talking with Lempire because their founder, Guillaume, was basically in middle school with me. This <laughs> such a crazy I think, story. I, I think I remember this from a, a Twitter post that you made, like the, the history of the acquisition started like when you were five, six years old or something. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is so cool. Tell me more about this. Like, how, how do, do you keep in touch over the years? How did that happen? We definitely not. No, we we didn't stay in touch. The thing is, so when I when I uh, started indie hacking, I looked up to this guy. Like I, I learned about Lemlist, and I found their their stories so crazy. Like they 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 grew so much, and they were a perfect example of of uh, how you can leverage your personal brand, how building in public can work uh, so well. And so I reached out to, to Guillaume, uh, just, just a tweet, actually. Like I, I tweeted, Hey, Guillaume, um, I think we were in middle school together. Are you, are you up for a coffee? And he said, yes. And we just, I think we had like lunch three times together, just talking about our products. Um, yeah, just talking. And then we were not selling at, at that point. And when we got into this willingness of, of selling the business, I just mentioned mentioned it with him, and he said, "Yeah, why not?" And so we started talking more seriously about it. And the crazy thing is, we I think we fixed all the details about the acquisition over WhatsApp on two weeks. It went it went so fast, and for us, like Tom and I, it was a clear signal that we were working in the same way, talking the same language, you know. Yeah, that that's kind of a, the indie hacker bootstrapper way of doing stuff, right? Not big lawyers, big contracts, meetings or whatever. You just have a WhatsApp chat and you just get the details figured out. That is an, an important part. And it kind of that that allows you for alignment, right? That allows for the kind of alignment that you know that you're going to be treated right in the future, that the product is going to be treated right the same way that you want it to be treated and that, you know, everybody benefits from this. That's really cool. Now, you mentioned that uh, you, you as a French business sold to another French business. Would you have sold internationally as well because that is usually more complicated to to sell you know the whole business or even the product out of a business on a on a different level like do do you think being in france selling to a french business made it easier for you or did you not care about that um so we were we we're definitely looking for uh selling internationally uh we thought that selling to a u.s buyer would would make the price way higher um, the thing is, Twitter and Tapio always had very high churn. And, and those, those big American players, they were so afraid about churn. Um, I don't know why, but like Guillaume was not. And like in this case, he was so right. Just, just, um, a bit about this. I think when Lempire acquired us, we were below 2 million in annual recurring revenue. And I think we are nearing, we're between six and seven right now. So more than triple the, the, uh, yearly revenue in a year and a half. How did you do that? Yeah. So that's, that, <laughs> that's a very good question. <laughs> I, uh? I, I honestly, I don't have the exact answer. Um, my, my strategy right now with Tom is do a lot, like really do, do more, ship more. In terms of feature, um, SEO contents, um, social media contents. And, and the thing is a lot, a lot of those are fading, but a few of them are, are succeeding and in a very big ways. One of the example is this, um, this yearly LinkedIn and Twitter uh, growth challenge that we do. We never expected them to work that much, but they do. Like they, they are bringing, we, we are doing them, uh, between January and March every new year. It's been the third year right now. And every year they are bringing so much new user who I think for every new year, just tell themselves this year is going to be their year where I'm going to be serious about Twitter or serious about LinkedIn. Yeah. And, and we are trying to help them, like motivate them on a daily basis. 
uh, with the platform, with ranking, with leadership, uh, with leaderboards, and uh, and it works. Like it's it genuinely motivate them, and and it bring uh, new subscribers to our products. So just by shipping more, doing new new project, new products, new free uh, mini tools, um, we are bringing in revenue. That's awesome. Has the team increased in size as well after the acquisition? Are there more people working on it now, like feature wise or whatever? A little bit more, but it's not crazy. Like we are between eight and ten people right now, um, but we have always remained very lean with the team, and I think that's that's a part of what makes us go very fast um, and have this this ability when we have an ID to just jump on the ID and and make it live instead of going through three levels of validation. You know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that, I think it's it's so important also once you have a small team or as long as you still have a small team, people understand the whole product, right? They understand how things are connected and maybe more importantly, they understand the customer, the people who use it because they cannot be far away from it if the team is so small, which makes these kind of events like you do, like the challenge. It's just you understand why people need it because you understand their motivation. I think that's great. I think that's that's something you you should be retaining for as long as possible. I love this. I love the idea of like building community. That's really cool. And I think it was simply not possible before, and right now it is. Like thanks to AI and and new tech like uh, serverless, uh, things like Next.js or Versal. Uh, it's it's definitely way more feasible to have a much smaller team and and have one developer doing the work of what used to be like ten developers, and it's it's crazy when I thought about like one of my previous uh, job was CTO as a big scale up company and I used to manage like thirty developers, and and like going to production shipping new code was was still something that was needed to be hundreds, you know, like it was, it was going bad sometimes. Uh, and, and sometimes the entire production team, like 30 people were, ha- had to work on an update because something went bad in the DevOps process. And so this is basically non-existent right now. There is, there is, there is nothing in an update. Uh, on the server process that could go wrong. And it's it saves so much bandwidth for the team that we can just work on what really matters. And I think it makes developers much, much closer, much, much closer uh, toward the end user that every, everybody win. Yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting development. I think I saw a tweet that you sent just very recently that somebody from the team told you that they looked at the code and it was so stable, like the whole product was so stable. They did not expect that because from other jobs they had before, everything was breaking all the time. I assume that's also my experience with software businesses that I worked for in the past. How how did you make that happen? How did you build a, a product that is so stable? I think you have this saying um, like ship it's ship like it's day one, but build like it's gonna last forever or something like this. Can you elaborate a bit on the the strategy that you have for your software development process? I'm not the one who said that, but <laughs> it's a, <laughs> it's a nice motto. Um, yeah, I, I think I think using so I'm I'm definitely not like um, Peter Levels in this. Like I'm I'm not using this PHP thing and uh, old tech. I'm I'm very pro new tech like Next.js and Versal, I think it like it's a game changer for me. Uh, the way you can just update your code and and have some um, safeguards on Versal to just warn you when something is going bad. I think it's it's life changer. Um, what's what's really interesting about Tweet Hunter and Tapio and I think a lot of AI based software, something like copy.ai does that too, is that it has it, it, it's able to provide a lot of value with a lot of different uh, small tools which are are not too much dependent on the one from each other so it creates less uh, tech complexity and so way less bugs that's that's an interesting observation 
I've uh, th- that's that is kind of a new thought for me because to me anything I add to a project increases complexity. But yeah, if you think about them as kind of standalone things, that that definitely just yeah, if if you can encapsulate them. How I, I want to talk to you about AI because that's like you know buzzword hype word at this point for a lot of people and a lot of the indie hackers, indie makers in our space built on top of AI and have been building on top of AI for years at this point. Do you see? Uh, I, obviously, there's a lot of benefits and there is a lot of opportunity there. But do you see risks? Because that's something that as a German, I need to know. I need to know where the risks are. Right? I want to see what the, the potential the drawbacks might be. Have you have you encountered any problems with the use of AI technology? Or do you consider that there might be some in your future? Uh, so I'm so like I'm I just I can't stand enough. The, the the enormous and huge opportunity that AI represents. <laughs> I'm not I'm not so much thinking about AI risk for now. So of of course I'm super scared about how AGI could go wrong, and that's that's a topic that I monitor closely. Like I'm I'm doing some um, weekly research about that about uh, new AGI stuff. But like for for like um, right now, when you look at indie makers work. Um, the I think the only thing where AI could go bad is things that you can see on Twitter already is that OpenAI goes down, and so uh, basically your product doesn't work anymore, or a user finds a loophole in your in your product and is able to like generate thousands or millions of things, and basically you will end up with. Uh, a thousand euros um, bill to pay to OpenAI, and that's like that's the two major issues that I see right now. Uh, except from that, it's it's I don't think anything is happening right now that could really negatively affect uh, developers and indie makers. Well, thanks for pointing this out. I think that's very important. Like the platform dependency, the platform risk on top of OpenAI on one side. And the abuse risk, the financial abuse risk on the other. I think if you're as an indie hacker want to start anything with AI at this point, you should definitely try to fix both of these before you go live, right? Or at least make sure that you have ways out of them. Obviously, can't really do much about the open AI. Although local AI is something that I've been looking into over the last, just myself for my own projects over the last couple of weeks. I've I've started to run, you know, like Llama or or Mistral. Um, just LLMs on my own computer on my my Mac Studio, and they're surprisingly fast. Like it's not GPT four, right? It's not the the multimodal model that we know from there that is so incredible. But you can do a lot on your own systems right now. Have, have you looked into this? Have you looked into kind of de-risking that particular platform feature if you use OpenAI at all? Um, so not not in the same way because I really don't want to run my own servers. But yeah, using Mistral with another provider, like uh, I think I think I'm um, I've been looking at Open Router. Um, yes, it can definitely save your save your ass if OpenAI goes down, which which had happened a few times in the last year. So that definitely is a is a nice thing. Man, Mistral isn't that also a French company? What is it with these amazing products coming out of France? That's yes, awesome, it is. right? <laughs> it's like that's I think that's the. Um, we're so proud to be French. It's it's crazy because like when when the EU um, started regulating AI, like I think everyone in the EU wanted to like leave <laughs> and was ashamed <laughs> about their own governments. Yeah. Right now, with this French company doing this, I'm so proud to be French again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet it's really cool. I, I mean, it's uh, it's generally interesting. the 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 French indie hacker scene, it, by in itself, is very interesting. A lot of interesting products come out of it, and a lot of interesting founders are just very present in the global community as well. I find that I find very interesting. I don't feel the same about the German uh, indie hacker scene at all. Like there are lots of people from there as well, but it, it feels like the French the French industry has more impact on my life. Then, you know, the German industry, the German indie hacker field has, which is uh, just an observation that I made. Which, and you are still located in France, right? Are you, are you, have you ever considered like nomading around like the Danny Postmas and Peter Levels of the world? Is, is that something that you've ever thought about I as did, an indie actually. hacker? Oh, yeah. Like I, I did, like I, I lived um, six months in Thailand. I met uh, Peter Levels there. 
Uh, I I also lived in Bali and I met uh, Danny Postmother. And so it's it's a little bit harder for me because I have a, a kid. And so like everything needs to be considered um, much more in advance. You need to find school, you need to find daycare. It's it's like everything is more complicated. But yeah, I, I love, um, I've loved nomading and the best people, the most interesting people I've met um, was during that time. You know, like uh, I, this in, in Bali, we had this group of people between 10 to 30 people, depending on the week, where every week we were gathering together and, and do some indie hacking together from nine to four. We were cutting on everyone on his own thing. And, and from four to five, everyone was demoing what he built and all the, the people there were giving feedback. And I enjoy this so much because indie hacking can be so lonely. Like sometimes you're, you're alone dealing with your own problems. It's hard to find a way out. Um, and, and sometimes just someone there with a small ID can pinpoint something, totally changing your, your perspective and giving you fresh ideas. And so I love that. Um, we went back in France because uh, our, our kid is growing and we wanted to be closer to family. But honestly, um, I, I miss that. Is there a similar community in, uh, I guess, Paris, where you live right now? Is there like a an indie hacker community that helps each other, or is that less so than as it was in? in Definitely less. The, the, I think the the problem with, with Paris and every big city in, in the world is that um, people grow there with their own um, group of friends, and and they are not they're not they're not very much looking for new new people to meet. And, and that's, that's definitely not the case in Bali. In Bali, you just get there and you get like 30 invitations the first week because everyone wants to meet new people, which is awesome. That's so cool. It's, it's really nice. I, I've never been. Like, I've never been in the nomad world because I've always just been living in my basement or, you know, sitting in front of my computer, never much of a traveler. But it's it sounds like a, a very, very enticing thing. Like, if I was... 20 years old again, I probably would, would do just that. I, I think Peter always says like it's super cheap anyway, and it's, it's kind of an education in itself, right? So you, you might as well do it. So that, that is cool. Do you, do you, do you still travel? Maybe that's an interesting question with, with a pro, with projects that you work for like this and new projects, which I would like to talk about in a minute. Do you still find time to travel or is work engulfing your life at this point? So I've been traveling, um, I've been traveling a lot in the last three years, which is pretty much the same, um, the same time at which I've been very busy with my projects. So my projects were definitely not blocking me in, in my travels. Right now I'm traveling way less because, um, because of family stuff, because my wife got a new job and because we have a new kid coming wow. soon, ah. <laughs> um, which is going to, I think is going to make us stay a little bit longer in France. Um, but who knows, maybe, maybe uh, we'll start again nomading in the, in the next few years. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing with nomading. You could just figure it out as you do it, right? That's part of the, the fun of this, but that, that is interesting. So new kid, also, new side project or new project, I guess. I, I want to talk to you about the, the latest thing that you've been uh, spending a lot of time on, I guess, and talking a lot about. You've been acquiring a business, which is, like I said, when I open up this whole conversation with why do you still code and why do you still work, I guess Typeframes is the next thing, right? It's the next thing you're going to be working on and you're working on right now. Can you explain to me, first off, what got you into video, video creation? And where you want to take this business? Um, so I've I've been tweeting for like three years right now, and especially with Elon Musk coming, I've I've seen the contents themselves going from like text to very much media based, 
And I'm pretty sure that Twitter, which was not um, a video platform and was not an image platform, is is going in that direction. LinkedIn is the same. And so my, my feeling is that um, everything is going to, to be video-based, basically, or at least like more video-based than what it was before. And, and I found Typeframe and that's, that's an interesting story. I, in the last, like in the last three years to support Twitter and Tapio, we acquired like, I think 10 new products, like tiny products, uh, which was mainly the work of an indie maker for like a day or a week or, or maybe a month. And so all those products that we acquired, um, were, have been bought for, for traffic that's then supported the growth of Twitter and Tapio. And one day I, I found out about Typeframe on Twitter. Like this, this guy, Lilian, uh, was releasing Typeframe and, and made a lot of noise on Twitter. People loves the, the products and, and so, it got released, people got subscribed. Um, but then something happens. I think, I think Lian just simply stopped working on Typeframe. I don't know exactly why, like if, if he got bored of the products or if he had stuff in his life that's made him want to focus on other things. But the thing is, he pretty much stopped working on Typeframe. And that's, that's where I reach out. And because, because we acquired a lot of products with Twitter and Tapio, I knew a bit about how to deal with this kind of uh, acquisition, like small products acquisition. And, and I found a way to, uh, to make the deal happen with, with Lilian. And Lilian trusted, trusted me in, um, in acquiring the products with, with a specific kind of deal where I didn't have the money to, or I didn't want to invest the money, uh, the full money of what I think Typeframe was, uh, was valued. But we found a deal where Lilian will, will get a revenue share of everything that Typeframe is going to generate in, in the next, um, few months or years, depending on how much it generates. And so the deal happened in September. Um, Typeframe was not a subscription-based product, I switched it to a subscription-based product. And from September to December, we went from zero to 4K in monthly recurring revenue, and it's still growing. That is so cool. <laughs> so nothing is done. Nothing is done. There's just a lot of things to work on, um, but it's it's super exciting way more um, tech demanding, I guess. But there is so much to do with when you have a video-based product. Do you consider this like a side project or is this like one of the main projects for you? Like where does it fit into your existing job that, or existing work that you do on the other products that you're kind of still managing? Well, it's it's definitely a side project for me because like my, my main uh, focus right now is still on Twitter and Tapio. But um, thanks to the acquisition, I have some money around. So I hired a developer and uh, we're working together on, on making Typeframe a little bit bigger. So um, this developer main focus is, is Typeframe. So we are able to sustain a pretty good shipping uh, speed. And, and I, I hope that with this structure, uh, it's going to be enough to to succeed in some way in the, in the Twitter sphere. I'm also trying to like the, since this structure has been pretty much successful, like going from zero to 4k in monthly revenue, I'm trying to actually launch new side project on sites. So I can't say too much right now, but I hope that's, <laughs> uh, I hope that some, some new things can come out in 2024. 
It is so crazy. This indie hacker way of just launching stuff all the time. Like you just started another thing. Well, why not build something else? I, I know the feeling. I'm working on another thing as well just now. It is, uh, <laughs> can't help myself because it's just so interesting, right? The technology, the, the, the field you're operating in. Let's talk a little bit about video. I think you're absolutely right. Like it's, it's not, I think, uh, unsurprising that yesterday, as of this recording, I think was the first Mr. Beast video that was fully posted to Twitter, right? That that was a big thing. Like Elon Musk posted it. I think within three hours, the Mr. Beast video got 18 million views just because it was the first like hour, or what was it, like 15, 20 minute long Mr. Beast video that was natively put on Twitter, not on YouTube. And it's like, that is a signal, right? Like if if people with this kind of following and this kind of like presence celebrity even choose this platform for their content, that is a very, very strong signal. So maybe the question is, as indie hackers, as people who are super busy already launching new products all the time, how much energy should we put into creating video-based content? Because it's easy to tweet, kind of. You still have to ha have something to say. But making a video, is that's a lot of work, scripting and recording and, or using tools to do it. Like, How much time would you recommend for indie hackers that are still building to spend on video creation? So I have, I have to admit that I have a very limited knowledge about, about that. And probably, you know, more than me. My, I think my only take, um, would be that I think when you are starting doing some video based content, we, we are overthinking it in a way that maybe you don't need a script. Maybe you don't need to edit your video. Maybe you just need to, uh, play starts, mess around with your own tool screen record at the same time and and post the video as it is maybe i love this it, it's also more honest right it's just like building in public sharing the actual reality of your life not kind of the the fancy glossy instagram version i agree with you like particularly screencasts if you follow follow a couple rules to to make it usable it doesn't have to be fancy right it just has to be true and i i think i'm a big believer of like quantity leads to quality in a way that if you if you look if you look at the perfect setup right at the beginning you will simply not start anything or at least 90 percent of the people will not start and so you just have to start with a messy setup uh, doing messy contents um crappy crappy video and just ship them and and be okay with the shame of of shipping them <laughs> and right. use that shame use <laughs> that shame to actually do better the next time but never miss a day or never miss a week i don't know what your your schedule is going to be i love this because if you if you listen to the first episode of this podcast that was just an audio podcast in the beginning i think i got the the worst mic i could possibly buy like the one with the the most gain and the most background noise the the, the yeti the blue yeti was really not for that and i i recorded like dozens of episodes with that trying to fix the crappy audio and post it was so horrible it's it's better now but if you listen to this episode and you listen to the first one there's a massive difference and honestly i am proud of that difference right and i've I, i've talked to so many creators that are proud of the steps they took to become better and that you can still see it Right? It's like you have traces, you leave traces of your, your increasing skill. Like you're learning in public by leaving those, those artifacts of your skill level at, ev at every single point. I very much agree with you. It's better that's, to constantly that's post so true. than to always that, over, over edit, right? That is so true. Like the, this feeling when, when you look at your first tweets compared to your last tweets, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. insane. Like the, the, this, this self-realization of how you got better. You, so you, you, you actually, I think you need to ship a crappy content at the very start, just, just for that. I think so too. And, and you always, you can always improve, right? There's always, particularly as you do it in public, there are so many people that have opinions that have feedback for you. If you just talk to them, if you just show it to them, you will find something that will make the thing better. Because hiding away in your basement and coding and coding and coding is not going to solve the problems that you're not aware of. So you really have to push it out and you have to share parts of it so that people can see the whole picture. 
That, and that's something you do really well. I think you do uh, a great work when it comes to building in public and sharing those steps along the way. So thanks for doing that. I think this is this is something that has been game changer for me uh, compared to my two first fading startups is that um, when we shipped Twitter to the support link at the very bottom of the page where redirecting people to my own Twitter DMs. And so I got the DM in real time and I was checking all day long. Like I was definitely not doing uh, all the, the very good advice that you can see on Twitter right now, which is like, check your DMs just once a day. I was definitely uh. not doing that. <laughs> and and I was able to listen, to see your feedback and try to implement uh, the fix in like five minutes. And when when I was doing that, the few users that uh, was 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 watching while I was doing it got got super impressed, and I think that was like both the awesome feeling that you get as a user when you are heard, and at the same time, the product improvements like that that was based on actual feedback. Both of that was super really contributed to the success of, of yeah. Tweet Hunter. Yeah, it's it's just, it's validation. It's uh, people solving your problems for you by telling, him, telling you what they need and showing where the difference is between what your product does and what it should be doing. I think it's uh, that's a great idea. Honestly, I'm doing the same for Podline for my, my latest thing that I've been building. Like my support is just my Twitter DMs as well. If people have a problem, they can tell me and then I can fix it for them. And honestly, I think quick, a quick response time to this, a direct message and then building the feature or fixing the bug and immediately pushing it to production. That feeling, not, not just for the developer, but for the person that had the problem, the feeling that somebody took you seriously and solved your problem right there, like within minutes, that is something that will make them turn them into the biggest evangelists you could possibly have for your product. Like that's kind of a, a marketing, a little marketing outsourcing that you do. This person will talk about you and your product positively forever. It's really, really powerful. That's, that's so true. And just something else about that is what, when you when you hear about a lot of people, what they are saying on Twitter is that it's so easy to get started a new product when you have a hundred k thousand followers, and. And of course it is like you get an acquisition boost at the very beginning, but when you have like zero audience, you have this unique advantage is that you are reachable. Just, just look on Twitter, um, see people like Danny Posma or Peter Levels. They just, they just can't, um, they just can't check their DMs. They just can't listen to every user. I think when you are getting started and when you have no audience yet, you can do that. And I was able to do that. I'm just not able to do it anymore right now. Yep. Oh, you and me both. I think like I, I have a hundred over a hundred thousand followers at this point, and it's just unmanageable. The UI is just not good. And they don't give you API access to DMs, so you can't build something better, which is also a problem with Twitter at this point, right? Like it's, it's, you, you can try, you can use probably private APIs, do a bit of shady stuff, but it's, uh, it is, it's horrible to manage. So you're absolutely right. Like DMs, if you're, if you're just under, under, I don't know what, 10, 15, 20,000 followers or whatever, you can still manage this. After that, it becomes a bit of a problem, but, but even then at that point, it's complicated. But yes, being reachable. Is uh is a an indie hacker advantage that nobody else has, right? It's a, you are a human being, you're a person, and you can connect with your customer on a level that no business ever could. That's really cool. Well, maybe let's take this opportunity to give people the chance to connect with you. Where would you like people to find you and follow you on your journey building these big projects that you sold already, like still building them up and building new side projects of which I don't even know what the next one is going to be. Where can people follow you for that? I think the best way to follow up about like my journey is uh, Twitter. I'm, I'm Thibaut on Twitter, T-I-B-O. And um, I try to answer to every single of the DM I get still. Uh, it's it's hard, but I do. And I also have a newsletter, which is uh, tibo, T-I-B-O, dot, beehive.com. 
Uh, I've just started this newsletter. So if any one of your listeners is going to subscribe and if you want to like share any feedback about it, feel free to do so. Uh, that would make my day. Oh, well, it's, uh, let, let me share some feedback. It's an amazing newsletter because not only uh, do I always read it when it comes in, which is rare because I tend not to check my emails too often, but yours is really cool because you always have something really, really useful in there. And we talked about several things from your newsletter on this conversation, right? Your, your year in review for 2023 and all the little things that happen along the way that comes from your newsletter as well. So thank you for writing this. I highly recommend subscribing to it and I will keep following you and Twitter because you're just a wonderful source of inspiration and insights into building indie hacker businesses, which is really, really cool. Thibaut, thank you so much for being on the show. That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much, Avid. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for today. I will now briefly thank my sponsor, Acquire.com. Imagine this. You're a founder who's built a really solid SaaS product. You acquired all those customers and everything is generating really consistent monthly recurring revenue. That's the dream of every SaaS founder, right? Problem is you're not growing for whatever reason. Maybe it's lack of skill or lack of focus or applying lack of interest. You don't know. You just feel stuck in your business with your business. What should you do? Well, the story that I would like to hear is that you buckled down, you reignited the fire, and you started working on the business, not just in the business. And all those things you did, like audience building and marketing and sales and outreach, they really helped you to go down this road, six months down the road, making all that money. You tripled your revenue and you have this hyper-successful business. That is the dream. The reality, unfortunately, is not as simple as this. And the situation that you might find yourself in is looking different for every single founder who is facing this crossroad. This problem is common, but it looks different every time. But what doesn't look different every time is the story that here just ends up being one of inaction and stagnation. Because the business becomes less and less valuable over time and then eventually completely worthless if you don't do anything. So if you find yourself here, already at this point, or you think your story is likely headed down a similar road, I would consider a third option, and that is selling your business on acquire.com. Because you capitalizing on the value of your time today is a pretty smart move. It's certainly better than not doing anything. And acquire.com is free to list. They've helped hundreds of founders already. Just go check it out at try.acquire.com slash arvid, it's me, and see for yourself if this is the right option for you, your business at this time. You might just want to wait a bit and see if it works out half a year from now or a year from now, just check it out. It's always good to be in the know. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder today. I really appreciate that. You can find me on Twitter at Avitkal, A-R-V-A-D-K-A-H-L. And you find my books and my Twitter course there too. If you want to support me and this show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Get the podcast in your podcast player of choice, whatever that might be. Do let me know. It would be interesting to see. And leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. It really makes a big difference if you show up there because then this podcast shows up in other people's feeds. And that's, I think, where we all would like it to be, just helping other people learn and see and understand new things. Any of this will help the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and bye-bye.